0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January the 6th, 2017. This is episode 1926 of the Survival Podcast, and it is Friday, 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 but it's not an expert council show. We gave the expert council a week off. I am doing a, a listener call show today, which was the original Friday, Friday, Friday show. And... Uh, I've got a good one for you today. i got a bunch of stuff lined up. First, I want to tell you about the weather. Yeah, you know, We don't talk about the weather much on the show anymore. We used to do it once in a while, especially when it was in the car because I was always dealing with weather. Well, right now, I'm looking at, I mean, snow. Like, a lot of snow. Like, it's just starting to accumulate, but it's a significant amount of snow for North Texas. And uh, sometimes I wonder, like, when I move south, should I have just kept going? Like, why do I live where the air hurts my face? I, I just wonder that sometimes. I wonder how many of you are going to either have experienced snow this week or will experience this snow because my understanding is this storm is going to move, continue to move east and begin to turn north into the Carolinas and that it is going to get more, uh, intense as it goes. We were, we were supposed to get, according to the weather guesser, a, a possible dusting, maybe some flurries. There are rare times when I wish this show was a video podcast. They're rare because a video podcast is a lot more work and it's a lot bigger pain in the ass to do. And I'd have to worry about things like you know my personal appearance and stuff like that. As I run my fingers through my my hair that still reeks of bedhead from uh, this morning, uh, I realize how happy I'm not. But if I had video podcasting going right now, I would turn. It out the window just to show you what I'm dealing with. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to pick my phone up right now, right live on the air. And I am going to get my camera out. And I am going to hit the video button. And you'll have to uh, just wait a second. I'll hit pause. And I'm going to walk to the window. You'll be able to see this on the video. I'm going to throw a little video up on YouTube right now. And uh, it will be on the air today as well. Anyway, I just tossed a, a quick video up there on YouTube of the snow, and uh, I don't know I don't know if it came out too well in the camera. It's actually coming down harder now than it was. I mean, I give up. I tried. Anyway, um, on to what we're going to be talking about today. How about considerations when buying an older diesel truck? I'll weigh in on that. Um, on the hacking, you know, I just talked about this yesterday. So I don't want to go too deep into it, but Collar called and asked a very poignant question. Well, who's to blame for this? who's to blame for the breaches in security. It's one thing to say, well, the Russians shouldn't do it, if the Russians, in fact, did do it. But who, who does it fall on to protect our data? And that's a complex answer. I'll try to break it down for you. But in this instance, those that want to think this is partisan, well, you will when I get to it, but it's not. It's just the truth. Uh, next up, the ins and outs of an IRS form, Schedule F. That is the Agricultural uh, Activities or Farm Form from IRS and how we use that here at Nine Mile Farm. A question on the difference between a partner and investor. Um, the guy that asked this question may not like some of the advice that I give on it. I, I, but I'm going to give real honest advice because I think it's necessary in this situation, because I have concerns for him. Uh, the next one is a another government revenue generation, I mean theft scam. Uh, I don't have a lot of th- comments on it, but the guy wants to know, like, does anybody else see this happening where they are? So I'll throw it up on the air. A listener tells us about his daughter's autism cure. You heard me correctly, cure. And a guy with questions on coon hunting, and I'll tell you what I think about that, though why I was... In my day of, uh, of killing coons, it was either, uh, in my Arkansas days, popping them off the porch because they were destroying our bird feeders and going, gee, there's a coon, we can use that for something. Uh, and as a, as a teen, it was really more a trapping thing, but I'll still give you my thoughts on it. And a question on hunting with the 40 Smith & Wesson. 40 Smith for deer. Hold on, with a carbine and a successful hunt, but should I really be doing this? And I have some mixed thoughts on that. All that more in just a bit. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, if, if you're like me, you know what a gun without ammo is. We call that an overpriced club. That's why I go to BulkAmmo.com and keep a good stockpile of ammo for all my guns at all times. And it isn't just great price and availability that keeps me going back for more. Nope, it's lightning fast shipping and exceptional service. Give BulkAmmo.com a shot and I promise they won't let you down. Hey guys, if you're like me, you're always concerned about the reckless economic policies of our nation. One way to ensure your wealth is to keep about five to ten percent of it in precious metals like silver and gold. And my first choice when I'm buying either is Jam Bullion because I get personalized service, free shipping, and better pricing than the big silver houses all in one place. Check out jambullion.com to learn more. And our TSP Business Directory supporter of the day is sustainable business planning. Get off to the right start with your farming business by attending one of Sustainable Business Planning's workshops online. It's a great place to learn the nuts and bolts of business accounting from a member of the TSP community. Check out Sustainable Business Planning on the TSP directory to learn more. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1926 because the episode is 1926. We have Agatha Christie is missing. We have... This man of vision is no joke. We also have notable births. Elizabeth II, who is alive today, the Queen of England, uh, also actually the UK, uh, as well as Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, who fancy themselves sovereign nations while they still have the Queen of England presiding over them. Fidel Castro, our man in Cuba, he turned into a communist and a lot of people died. Alan Greenspan, also a living member of the directory now, a Federal Reserve chairman married to Andrea Mitchell, NBC News, say no more. Robert Schurler, television evangelist and founder of the Crystal Cathedral. Alex Shrug tells us, FYI, in his earlier work, he saved my friend's life. In his later work, your mileage may vary. Yeah. And in entertainment, Hugh Hefner, who is living. Marilyn Monroe. Don Rickles, insult comic best known as Mr. Potato Head in the Toy Story series. I guess today that would be true. Jerry Lewis, who's also a living slapstick comedian and host of the Muscular Dystrophy Telefons. Andy Griffith, actor in No Time for Sergeants, The Andy Griffith Show, and Matt Locke. Leslie Nielsen, actor in Forbidden Planet and the Naked Gun series, and I can't believe Alex left it out. Airplane! Airplane, probably the best thing that Leslie Nielsen's ever done is his work with Airplane. Mel Gibson, living, comedian and creator of Spaceballs, the Young Frankenstein, Blazing Saddles, and on and on. Chuck Berry, living, rumors that the man from the future gave him the song Johnny Be Good are false. There's a link to uh, see the one from the original and the one from Back to the Future. In other news, Father Coughlin begins his radio broadcast. They are religious and anti-KKK and later becoming political in support of FDR's New Deal. Not so bad. And anti-Semitic in support of Hitler. Oh, wah, wah. Uh, emperor Hiroshido ascends to the throne. He will be emperor when Japan attacks Pearl Harbor on that day that will live in infamy. And Winnie the Pooh is published in this year, 1926. The author named the characters for his kids' toys. Who is the kid? Well, Christopher Robin, of course. Jack's little piece of advice for those of you that are dealing with young babies on Winnie the Pooh. And your grandparents are like, I did this already, and now there's grandbabies in my home and they cry. The Christopher Robbins song, Return to Pooh Corner by Kenny Loggins. It's on YouTube. Bookmark it on your phone. Hit play, stick it in front of them, and put the video on that they made with the slideshow that the person made, the first one that comes up. And it is amazing. It's like, it's like soothing baby Formula 101. I, I'm telling you, my granddaughter loves it, and uh, it's uh, the song that gets stuck in your head, but it's worth it, because it soothes the crying baby. You can trust me, it is Jack approved for that. I had a hard time picking today uh, between Agatha Christie is Missing, because we all know the Agatha Christie mysteries and stuff like that, and The Man of Vision is no joke, because they're both interesting. But I'm going to go with The Man of Vision is no joke, because I think there's a lesson in it for all of us that have dreams. Like the first trickle that precedes an avalanche, a big event often starts small. As a boy, Robert Goddard, read H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. Ever since he has dreamed of space flight. of course, in the War of Worlds, the Martians propelled themselves through the void of space, using a giant gun to shoot themselves toward Earth like a bullet. But what would happen if the gun shot itself upward? This is how a rocket works. By forcing material out of the tube at high speed, the, the, uh, the tube and everything attached to it moves in the opposite direction. If you point the tube down, you are going up. Goddard has already patented the idea of a multi-stage rocket and its liquid fuel engine. With enough, without enough money to build the high-pressure fuel pump, he substitutes a tank of inert-pressurized gas to push the fuel into the consumption combustion chamber. On a snowy March day, he steps out to test his latest design. It lights, and thankfully it does not blow up. It reaches the height of 41 feet. It may not seem like much, but the father of modern rocketry measures success in small increments. Quote, every vision is a joke until the first man accomplishes it. Once realized, it becomes commonplace, end quote. Robert Goddard, in response to the New York Times laughing criticism of his work. My take by Alex Shrug. Earlier, Goddard had suggested that large rockets could be used to fly to the moon. That may have been why he drew ridicule. After all, only people suggesting we could fly to the moon were novelists like H.G. Wells. The other novelist to inspire the innovation was Arthur C. Clark. He is best known to the technical community for writing articles about satellites that could be used to bounce a TV signal around the world. In 1945, that was like having a computer that filled a room and envisioning a computer in every pocket. I was watching a computer show hosted by two guys I've been following since the 80s. My granddaughter asked, Grandpa, why are you watching these old guys talk? She was tweaking me. I replied, those old guys worked their backsides off so you could have that smartphone you love so much, you ungrateful little. She gave me that look that all kids do. She'll learn how it feels soon enough. Uh, Yeah, definitely. I think that... like. The, the the current generation, this is not putting them down because we, we're all guilty of this as, as, as youths, doesn't really understand what went into making what they have today work the way that it does. The the people that actually did the innovation before any of this stuff existed. We live in what I call a microwave generation. People are just not not impressed anymore by anything. I wish this was faster. <laughs> Yeah, you've never heard the sound. And not heard you've got mail after it, right? Okay? You guys know what I'm talking about, where you used to have to dial the phone yourself. You put the phone in a cradle for your Commodore 60. I'm old. Yes, I'm old. Anyway, um, the, the, the lesson here, though, is that when someone says that something's possible and the people around them have small enough minds that they can't envision it, Rather than say, oh, well, you know, hopefully somebody like you can make this happen or someone else can make this happen, what they say is, you're an idiot. You're, you, that'll never happen. That'll never work. It's, it's human nature to cling to what we know. We cling uh, like small creatures on the bottom of a, of a, of a river to the rocks because we're afraid if we let go, the river will smash us into the rocks and, and destroy us when the, the, the real way forward is to let go. That's, uh, that's from the little intro in the book Illusions by Richard Bach. If you've never read that book, you might want to consider reading it. And uh, it might change your paradigm on a lot of things. It might upset you, too. It depends. I don't know. But my point is, if you believe that you can make something work, go for it. Go for it. 100% all out. With that, let's get into the main stuff today. But i got one more little uh, item here. I want to send out a, a big old happy birthday to P.A. Prepper on the Zello channel. Uh, P.A. Prepper is probably the number one reason that uh, the Zello channel has be- become as successful as it is. If you guys don't know about Zello, you really should get on the Zello channel. You can find a link in the... Uh, uh, the, the TSP website at the dot com up at the the toward the, uh, the 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 center column toward the top you'll see a whole thing that says uh, ways to connect with us connect with us and there'll be a bunch of stuff there and one of is the Zello channel and it's like a two way radio channel anyway uh, our 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 number one moderator on the Zello channel PA Prepper is turning forty eight years old today. And I want to say, hey man, thank you for all the work you do there, and I hope you have a great birthday. And hey, it's always great to have a birthday on a Friday because then it you know carries into the weekend. So enjoy your birthday weekend, there, PA Prepper. Um, on that note, I wanted to throw something out. I got suckered into an impulse buy today, and I know these shirts have been around a while, but they never applied to me before. Um, I was on Facebook this morning, you know, chatting with some of you guys, and. uh I found a uh, I saw a shirt uh that was uh kind of cool looking. And it says Life begins at forty five. It's got a skull and crossbones, some cross pistols, and it says nineteen seventy-two, the year of legends and uh the or the birth of legends. And uh, if you're if you're if you were born in seventy-two, you will turn forty-five this year. And uh you might like this shirt, I have a link to it. And if you were born any other year, uh, they pretty much make these 45 ones for like, oh, I don't know, everybody, I think. If you were born in 73, maybe you have to wait till next year then. All right. Anyway, uh, with that, let's go ahead and take your first call.
1: Hey, Jack. This is Ben from Arizona. Uh, also, Iron Teacup on the forum. Uh, I'm looking at buying an older diesel or any sort of diesel truck, really, something that can fit or that has four doors and has a large load capacity. I was wondering what the general things are you want to check on a diesel and what you might want to do as preventative maintenance once you go to buy a diesel truck of any sort, what you're looking at doing everything from maybe restoring the engine or upgrades or anything that might make it more reliable. I intend to put a battery bank and all that sort of stuff in it, and I want a 4 by 4 For what one might call overlanding. Then along with that, it would happen to function stack as a uh, bug out vehicle. But predominantly, I want it so that I can go four by fouring with my wife and potentially a couple of kids later on in the future. Thank you for all your help. Please let me know if there's anything else.
0: Okay, so I have a variety of thoughts here for you. I want to start out with. Um, if you're going to look at an older vehicle, it, you, you need to check individually in all instances, but it, it's mostly around 2010 to 2012 that diesel trucks began to incorporate DEF, or diesel exhaust fluid. I don't hate DEF, okay? I, I don't hate it. I don't love it either. It's, it's basically piss, just to be honest with you. It's, it's urea and uh, some other things, and it does help with emissions, and it actually does help improve mileage on Uh, Diesel trucks, it's not a bad thing. What I'm uh, opposed to is the way in which it it was incorporated through the the leverage of the state to where what happens is if you run out of it, even though your truck is totally capable of running fine without it, there will be some sort of a a limiting capacity that will, will go into like a limp home where it won't really have much power. It's to, to force you to put DEF in. Uh, or some of the trucks, what they'll actually do is, okay, you can only start it like four or five more times, and then it won't start, it won't run. Again, not because anything's wrong with the truck, because they want to force you to use it for emissions purposes. So do your first decision is going to be do i want an older truck so i can avoid this stuff or do i want a newer truck cuz it's newer and better and what have you and and then i just need to treat my def tank like a second fuel tank and if either one runs out i have a problem and it's it's not a huge burden it doesn't your truck doesn't use a tremendous amount of it the tank is fairly large um so if you fill it uh, like a lot of people basically fill it up every time they do an oil change if they drive a lot and they don't they don't have a, a much of a problem but you need to make sure that you plan for that. If you buy anything out, you know, anything that is deaf required. Again, deaf is diesel exhaust f- uh, fluid. A fancy name for piss in a bottle. But no, you can't pee in your truck tank. That won't work. Uh, it is, it, there is some things done to it beyond just being a, a bottle of pee. Um, so that's, that's one thing. And again, I don't hate it, but it's something to consider. The next thing I'm going to say is this. All modern vehicles are decent. And everything made in the last 25 years is damn good. I mean everything. I mean from your piss bucket little uh, Kia all the way up to your high-end Mercedes. And I'm going to put it to you this way. In the words of Ed Wallace from the, the local show here on the Radio Wheels that he's been doing for like 30 years, how many of them do you see on the side of the road? And I'm going to tell you guys, when I was a kid in the 70s and 80s, you saw people on the side of the road with their cars all the time. And I don't mean changing a tire or with a wreck. I mean the damn thing broke down. So most vehicles are good. So Dodge, Chevy, what, I, I, what you, whatever you like. And honestly, with a used vehicle, whatever you can get the best deal on that gives you what you need. That said, while vehicles today are more reliable than they were 30, 40 years ago... They are more complex. They are definitely harder to work on, and they definitely cost more to maintain. So if you want to go way old school, I'm going to leave that out because I'm going to assume that you don't. Um, but you definitely can find vehicles that are easier to work on. I mean, we've talked about cut Vs with with Tim Glantz. He wanted a vehicle that's pretty easy to work on. They're not even that old. They're like a mid-'80s vehicle, and uh, they're a one-ton Chevy. Uh, the, the, the pickups and the, uh, the Blazer versions, both of them are, are pretty damn useful, but probably not what you're looking for. You want something with four doors, right? So we're gonna roll that out. And, they they're a lot more rare if you go back to the time frame. So we're gonna take modern and current last 25 years. Whatever you like, the condition that it's in. However, even me, with a background in diesel mechanics, When I bought my truck, which is a 2005 Ford F-350 Super Duty without dualies, I'll get to that in a second, um, the first thing I did after it kind of like it starts well, it runs well, it seems okay, the body looks good, it doesn't look like it's been in a wreck, um, check the hoses, check the belts, nothing looks dry-rod, it looks like it's well-maintained, everything seems to be good. I'd like to take it for a test drive. Okay, no problem, sir. We're going to need your license and take a photocopy. By the way, it's going to be quite a long time because I'm going to take it down the road right there, and I'm going to have my mechanic look over at Stem to Stern and do a pre-purchase inspection that I will be paying for before I bring it back. Well, you don't need to do that. We do a 99 and That's great. I'll spend my 100 bucks of insurance with my guy to take a look at your truck before I make you an offer on it. You don't want to do that, I don't want to buy your truck. Because there's a lot of things that could be wrong that are very difficult to tell by listening, looking, and feeling, but the computer will tell you the truth. Now, most good dealers, if there's something wrong with it like that, they're going to let you know. Here's the other thing, though. Just things like putting it up on a lift, checking your tie rod, your suspension components, and things like that. When people do these 99-point or whatever inspections on these, you know, even reputable used dealers, um, their question when they do the inspection is: "It good enough? Is it serviceable? Is it in decent shape?" Yes. Where the mechanic that does it for you that charges you somewhere, but and usually the pre-inspection will be somewhere between seventy and one hundred fifty dollars, and you expect to pay a little more for a diesel. A lot of times, people, no matter what they're doing. They won't let anybody touch a diesel vehicle in their shop unless it's their their master diesel tech or whatever friggin' name they give to it because he's the one diesel guy there because diesel mechanics command more money. Um, so you you pay for that. When they check something, they're going to tell you, well, yeah, this is fine for right now, but you probably are going to have to replace it within about twenty five to 30,000 miles. Good piece of information to have applies to everything, not just diesels. The next thing I'm going to suggest is that you stay away from duallys, okay, Dualies are the ones with the big bubbles on the back end. You have two back wheels on both sides. Unless you have a very compelling reason for something heavy that you're going to be towing or hauling that warrants dualies, they are nothing but a pain in the ass. It is only a matter of time before you put a hole in one or somebody that parks next to you puts a hole in one of them on you, which is more likely the second one everything you do with a big truck especially if you're going to go with an 8 foot full size bed with a four door i drive one you have to start planning where you're going to park in advance when you pull into a parking lot there's times where you think i want to go in that parking lot and you look at it and you realize it's whatever i wanted there isn't worth it, it, it it's, it's a different thing with that you know the truck is like 34 feet long or so it's like a small bus and so you you need to start thinking, do you want that extra two feet of bed? If you want to do a battery bank, you'll probably do because that leaves you with a six-foot cargo bed. That's partly, you know, a, a reason I like mine now. I bought it originally because it was the best one I could find at the price. But I would have took a six-foot bed back then because I wasn't even thinking about battery banks back when I bought this thing. So that's that's going to be another consideration. But definitely get... A pre-purchase inspection, and unless you know why you're doing it, stay away from dualies. Four-wheel drive. My truck has four-wheel drive, and I think four-wheel drive is a fine thing. But there's there's more to life than four-wheel drive. So sometimes four-wheel drive really jacks up the price of a truck. But what I've seen is most of your heavy-duty diesel trucks, your 250s and Chevy 2500s, etc., tend to be four-wheel drive. So it shouldn't be that hard to find, but just know, everything that you add to a vehicle is another thing that can go wrong, another thing that can break, another thing that can malfunction. So that, that's something else to can do. Also consider with four-wheel drive, well, what type of four-wheel drive does a vehicle have? You know, mine has kind of an old-school four-wheel drive. It's got it's a little, little lever, you just, there's actually a little dial, you turn it from two-wheel to four-wheel drive, and from four-wheel high to four-wheel low, no problem. You want to go four-wheel low? Oh, wait. You gotta get out of the truck, you gotta turn the front hubs in. Okay. I don't mind that. It didn't it wasn't a deal breaker for me. But I have been places, not with my truck, but with other vehicles that you have to turn hubs in, where you get stuck and the front wheel is buried in cold water. you have to stick your hands down in the muck and the mud and find and that's not as much fun? So it's something else to look at if you're if you're thinking there. On you know, rebuilding motors and whatever, I, I, I'm a belief. That if you have a diesel motor that's been well maintained and everything that's supposed to be done to it has been done to it, your, your oil changes, filter changes and stuff like that, at 150,000 miles, that ve that, that motor's finally broken in. You're talking about today's modern diesel motors when properly maintained, and that means you do everything on the maintenance schedule, not just the stuff you think's important, but everything on the maintenance schedule, they're half million mile engines. They, and, and that's, that is like, if, if it if it doesn't make it there, it was a failure. And if it does make it there, there's a good chance it can keep going. So I look at my vehicle with like 140,000 miles on it, and I, I drive about 10,000 miles a year, and I go, the, the, the body will rust off of it before the engine goes, as long as I maintain it. It's for what to do while you have it. Get the maintenance schedule for your vehicle. Follow it religiously. And, and, and the specific things are like, if I got this vehicle and it was it was used, I would take it immediately and get the fuel filters replaced i don't care unless you look in and you could tell like they were just done, like you can see like they're shiny and every generally speaking that's something that a lot of dealers kind of fall back on is replacing those and the thing is you don't know when the last time it was done, unless you have all the maintenance records or something like that and, and get on that schedule and do it religiously. Really, check your belts, um, and that might be worth just doing pretty soon after you get a new used vehicle unless they look pristine because a belt flying off can cause all kinds of problems in any vehicle, especially now everything's serpentine, everything's interconnected it's not just you know losing your alternator belt or losing your water pump belt you're losing everything you can I'm not going to go into it, but it can cause a lot of mechanical headaches. Um, I guess that's as much as I can do on it. You know, a, 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 trying to keep an answer under ten minutes, which I've already failed to do. So hopefully that helps you, and hopefully that's good advice for anybody buying any vehicle. I, I can't overstress this enough. Unless you're talking about like a fifteen hundred to twenty five hundred dollar jalopy you're buying, buying private party, and you know you're taking a gamble, and you notice know problems with it, when you're investing, you know, ten thousand, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars in a vehicle, I don't care what it is take it to a mechanic and get a pre-purchase inspection done. That guy is not going to lie. He's not going to tell you it needs something it doesn't need because he knows if he gives you enough of a problem, but you're going to take it back and not buy it. When you pay for that, you're going to get the straight scoop, you know, 99.9% of the time cheap insurance. Let's go ahead and take another one.
2: Hey Jack, this is Dean in Idaho and I have a thought slash question. Um, regarding the current email issues with Russia and the U.S. government. We've been hearing them do lots of saber rattling, blaming, talking about how Russia hacked these emails. The one thing I have never heard is, who is responsible for protecting the security of our uh, information and who's to blame for the fact that the Russians can hack in and get access to these sensitive uh, email communications. And uh, the other thing I was thinking is I would be shocked if we're not doing the same thing. I don't know about hacking them, but well, hacking to gain information. I don't know if we're intentionally meddling in their affairs, but uh, I'd be shocked if we weren't uh, at some level trying to uh, run interference or at least gain information in that regard. So. Hey, who's to blame, and uh, why aren't we talking about that instead of Russia's the bad guy? Hey, great show, love everything you're doing, thanks, have a good day, bye.
0: Well, that's a, a very interesting question, and it really is two different, it's really three different questions. Um... In many ways, because the last part, well, I'm not really sure if the U.S. has interfered with other people's elections, uh, maybe not in this exact way. But I, I believe it was Tom Cotton during the, the I could be wrong, but, but during the Senate Armed Services uh, Committee uh, hearing yesterday pointed out uh, in his opening remarks before he asked some questions of the, the people that were gathered there, that the United States has documented interfered and tried to influence foreign elections. I believe the number he threw out was something like 89 times. And the, the 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 Russians slash Soviets have done maybe a fraction of the of the interference in, in this type of direct interference way uh, with trying to uh, to influence the outcome in elections. So that's my, my comment yesterday about uh, I think it was Trey Gowdy that wants to throw or it wasn't Trey Gowdy. I should be fair to him. He does some decent stuff time to time. Um, I don't know one of them want to throw a rock. Maybe it was no, it wasn't Gowdy. I don't remember who it was. So want to throw a rock back there. Said Obama threw a pebble. He want to throw a rock. And uh, people in glass houses need to be not throwing rocks and stones, right? Persons residing in crystalline structures should refrain from hurling lapidary objects. Those of you who have studied Latin, you will know the, 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 the significance of saying it that way. Anyway, um, so who's to blame, though? Who's to blame? Well, in this instance, the, really the people to blame are the people that got hacked, so this another reason I play this. It gives me an opportunity to clear something up that I said yesterday that may or may not be the case. So po- posted in the the the, sh- the show notes yesterday in the comments that it, what's well, name Leon Podesta's password was not actually name was not actually password. That he did actually have or did use the password password where the a was simply the at sign. So it was p at sign SS, but it was for his Windows 8 computer and it's been misconstrued. He had a different password for his email account, but in fact, he did respond to a phishing email. What, what happened, whether his password was password or not, I don't know, uh, but let's just say it wasn't. Uh, he got an email that looked like it came from Google Tech Support, and it said, you're, you've already been hacked, and we need your password to run diagnostics on the hack. And he, he sent that back, he, reply, my password is, and sends it to him. Okay, that's his fault, because you're an idiot if you do that. You no No provider of email services, and this guy was like the head of CIA or some shit like that, right? No, I mean, come on, right? Nobody from Google is going to ask you for your password. They actually sent emails once in a while reminding you, we will never ask you for your password. So in the case of the emails that were hacked because of Podesta, the, the reason that happened, the, the weak link, the person that fell down on a job was Leon Podesta, and he was using Gmail. So he was not using government-provided services. So whoever in our government is supposed to look over at the shoulder of our employees is not responsible because the employee didn't do what he was supposed to do. However, most of his emails regarded here were with the DNC, right? The Democratic National Committee. The DNC is not a government agency. Neither is the the the, uh, the RNC, the Republican and Democrat. Uh, groups that, 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 you know, basically act as, uh, the, the central organization for the purpose of getting candidates from their parties elected are private. They are private groups. So, the hacks we have that we're talking about mostly here are hacks on Podesta, Hillary Clinton, okay, and the DNC in total. So the people responsible to protect those are Leon Podesta doing things outside of this government employment, Leon Podesta. The DNC, the DNC. Hillary Clinton should have been the top technical people at the State Department, but she put a private server in her her bathroom, so it's Hillary Clinton's fault. And here's the thing. When it comes to Clinton's emails, the people that are supposed to protect them may or may not have been able to, but they were not given the opportunity to protect them. So where does that blame fall? That blame falls squarely on the shoulders of Hillary Clinton. And I personally believe, now I'm going off fact to opinion, I personally believe that it was an attempt to avoid exposure of things she didn't want exposed through FOIA requests, Freedom of Information Act. Right, because they could definitely say, "Well, some of this can't be re- revealed because it's secret or top secret or whatever." But anything that wouldn't be as public servant doing the public's works could become subject to FOIA, and you might learn a lot of things that we've learned. So that's the case there. However, I would say that something's rotten at the State Department and our federal government as a whole when the Secretary of State is capable of setting up a private server to do, you know, official business. Like that should never have happened. As for who's responsible in total, I don't really know that there's any specific one agency that's responsible for cybersecurity for the United States government. Each organization has its own security, and where it interacts with other agencies, there's interagency security at place. I will say that our security at that level is pretty good. I don't know if pretty good's good enough but it's pretty good it's as good as anything else out there uh, we and, and if if our government employees use the assets that are provided them and follow the protocols that they're given, the data is as secure as it can be in 2016 2017 under the current situation in the end again I know people think this is partisan but the buck starts with the buck stops with Obama when it comes to that level of direction, that's more under the executive branch than anything else. And putting good policies in place that require accountability uh, and, and 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 compliance, that comes from the office of the president. So now the person that will become responsible for that is Donald Trump. And we'll see where it goes. But who's responsible for the data loss uh, at the DNC? The DNC... and and all of their clowns running around using multiple different email solutions and 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 sending things back and forth, including passwords and things like that, back and forth to each other. And and and, you know and because the problem when you start doing stuff like that is once one person's breached, it's only a matter of time before everything's breached. And that's why that treasure trove came out. And I gave my, my my thoughts on what we learned but I'll just say it again here. I, I am sick of hearing the Russians, the Russians, the Russians. Okay, fine. Then you guys fix your shit because we're all hacking each other. That, that's, that's always been the case, and it will always be the case. But there's no fix for stupid. And when you do things like respond to an email that says we need your password with your password, you're being stupid. So there, there has to be a certain amount of, uh, of accountability to the individual. I, I I don't like to pat Republicans on the back, but but I have to believe the reason we didn't get a treasure trove of shit out of the the RNC isn't because the people that did this just wanted to hurt Hillary Clinton. I, I, if you remember when when Bush was in office, WikiLeaks well, wasn't exactly a fan of, a fan of George W. Bush. All right, they 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 tend to be an equal opportunity hater. That's part of what I like about them. I think that the RNC maybe is running a little bit more sophisticated program as to how they control inter-agency uh, communications. If you talk to anybody who is like a network security person, they'll tell you that the concept you have a large organization where people are communicating with each other with sensitive information that they don't want to get out in public. And they're not using a centralized communications medium with certain systems uh, of protocol, procedure, and security on it is just a nightmare. That, that 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 any good network security administrator would say: if you want me to provide security for what you're doing, you can't be using Yahoo and you're using Gmail and you're using at DNC.org and you're you're using your 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 personal uh, domain and you're you you can't be doing this. I can only protect what's on our domain within our server's usage, and I can only do that if you follow the systems and procedures that I give you. And that's what's necessary to provide at least the best security we're capable of. Now, I'm going to tell you that the hacking capabilities of this country, nations like China, Nations like Russia and other nations that you probably wouldn't think of that never get mentioned, like, Oh, I don't know the UK. Okay. Um, Israel. Okay. They're very sophisticated. Very, and there's a lot of very sophisticated hackers out there that have no governmental affiliation. There's, there's people that have regular jobs and make lots of money with computers that in their private life, they see what they can do. I'll just leave it at that. And and I have yet to see compelling information that tells me that the people behind this is the Russian government. Now, it's being claimed by our government that's the case. We're supposed to have a publicly uh, uh, vetted report that can come out, I think, next week. We'll see what it says. I I'm skeptical. But what I would still like to know is why is nobody asking the important questions like, now that we know this information, regardless of how we know this information, why is nobody being held accountable for this? Why is nobody being held accountable for what we have? Like, oh, I don't know. I won't go there. Let's go on and take another one.
2: Hi, Jack. This is Clinton from Northwest Ohio. Country, root, city, job on the forum. I have got a question for you about your farm, Uh nine-mile farm. Do you fill out a Schedule F that is on your taxes? Um, or farm expenses and farm income. I'm assuming you do, which means my next question of are you able or how are you able to leverage the nine-mile farm to make use of um, expenses for your farm? Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I guess that's the question. How, how do you leverage your farm as per tax write-offs? There we go. All right, that's what I was curious about. Um, curious if there's anything I'm doing right now that I could also do that would make sense. Um, all right, well, I look forward to hearing your answer. Thank you.
0: Well, I'll just say that one does not leverage a business for tax write-offs. That's that's not how. It, so you don't say, you know what? I'd like to write off a lot of stuff, and so my motivation in calling myself a farm is to create a tax write-off. What one says is I would like to be in the business of farming for the purpose of making a profit and in that activity the expenses generated therefore are are, are taken off of that income and, and as an individual uh, in the United States, therefore any of my income is subject to that loss and, and it's important that you say it that way okay and and, and I, I it is important you say it that way, but I'm actually being sincere. I never go into business in any business, specifically to create a loss. Because if I want to create a loss, there's other ways to lose money than to go through all the trouble of being in business. So the reason you do a Schedule F is simply because the expenses that you incur in farming activities require that form to be expensed. Now, when it is, is your really small time and you would call it like a like a hobby farm, maybe, and you are maybe making a little bit of money, you can put that into your your, your itemized, uh, you, you know, maybe your Schedule C or whatever. But as you move into true agricultural pursuits, the proper form to fill out is the Schedule F, because when you're buying feed for animals. That is clearly an agricultural expense, and that's where it goes. So all the Schedule F is is just another form. It's just another form where you break out of my earnings, or I wouldn't even say earnings, of my revenue, because earnings indicates a profit. Earnings means that's what you had after. So of my revenue, X dollars in revenue were farm-based revenue. In fact, your farm-based revenue is only reflected on your schedule F. So if you do let's say $15,000 in sales from your farm, that money doesn't get put on your schedule C or your 1040 or whatever. It goes on your schedule F. Okay? It goes on your schedule F. That wherever it it came from, you put it down as total sales revenue activity on that Schedule F. And then you begin to reflect expenses against just that revenue. Now, let's say that you had $16,000 in expenses. That form being appended to your tax return would reduce your taxable income, by $1,000. So it would become a tax write-off at that point. It would be a write-off of a loss in a business activity. So if you were going to pay tax on $80,000 and you had a Schedule F with a $1,000 loss, you would now pay tax on $79,000, just like all the other things that reduce that taxable income. Most people's gross income and taxable income have a pretty big difference between them. And if they don't, either you have a hourly job, and you don't make a lot of money and you don't own a home or you need a new accountant. Those are your two choices there. If there's not a big difference between gross earnings and taxable earnings, you need a better accountant or you need more activities in your life that are designed to generate their own revenue. Okay. So that's how that works. So, so that's, that's it. Now, the, the advantage in doing a Schedule F is it makes you an actual farm. You are a farm and therefore, uh, in time, should you decide to go into farming uh, full time, and you want to go after things like agricultural loans and stuff, it makes it more possible that you would be able to acquire those loans. And the compelling reason for this is, especially when you move beyond, you know, selling eggs to your neighbor. I mean, I'm personally of the opinion. If you have a small backyard flock of a dozen chickens or something like that, or you, uh, occasionally sell a basket of apples or something, and it's all cash, you're supposed to report that, but it's between you, the person you sold to, and the fence post, in my opinion. When you actually build a business, right, um, a, a, a significant business like us, we have restaurant customers, we have farm to fork, uh, retail outlets and things like that, that those people are paying you with checks and they're not buying a dozen for eight bucks. They're buying two, three, four hundred dollars worth of product at a time. They're expensing that off. It creates paper trail and therefore you have to report the income. And if you, if you don't report the revenue, you've got a problem if they catch you. A big ass problem. So if I'm going to report $25,000 worth of revenue last year from farm activities, I need a place to also put in that I had eighteen thousand dollars in expenses and my profits only seven, so I'm paying profit on seven. Because if I don't reflect the expenses, I'm going to pay prof, I'm going to pay tax on all of the money, not just the profit. So that that's that's all that form really is. It's just the place that you define your earnings and your expenses against those earnings. So when you're keeping track of your expenses, you need to verify where they belong. So, for instance, if I were to do, and I don't, but if I were to do a lot of driving for the Survival Podcast, right, that would go on my return for the Survival Podcast, on that piece of my return. It would not be on my Schedule F. But when Dorothy gets in the the vehicle and drives to the feed store and back for the specific purpose of picking up feed for the animals, there's a mileage expense, and that mileage expense goes on the Schedule F. So it could be that we, we don't, because, again, I don't just don't drive a lot for the show, but if if I had a mileage log I was keeping and she did, those even though they might even affect the same vehicle, and it gets kind of gray there, they would go into different categories as to where they're expensed out, because one is for the purpose of agriculture. The other pers- purpose would be for media broadcasting, if that makes sense. In the end, get a good accountant and do what your accountant says. Let's take another one. Hello.
3: Happy New Year. This is Brian from Delaware, and my question is, is there a difference between a business partner and an investor in a business? Details. Currently, I am looking to invest some money into a commercial property with another person. I didn't know exactly what the difference was between an investor and a business partner. Currently, I am working Currently where I live and where I work is about three hours away from property that we're looking to invest in. A restaurant with a liquor license. I have a little, a couple reservations, but I guess I just wanted to know what tips, advice that you might have, Jack, in starting a business. I know you're a successful business person, so I was just having some questions. I'm not sure if this might even be something John Pugliano could also address, but I just wanted to know a couple uh, nuggets of advice and wisdom. I really appreciate it. Thanks for all you do. Merry Christmas and have a Happy New Year. Bye-bye.
0: Okay, I'm going to start out with something you may not want to hear, and I could be wrong. I'm going to preface that with it, okay? My gut is to tell you run away, run away, run away, run far away, and don't do this. The fact and I'm not putting you down, I'm not insulting you here, I am genuinely concerned for your financial well-being, and I'm concerned for the friendship that you likely have with this prospective partner long-term. But when you have to ask the question if there's a difference between an investor and a partner, I don't know that you're ready to be either one. Okay, I'm not saying you're not, but just please don't let desire and emotion get in the way, because in business... There's a great place for passion, but when making decisions about where your hard-earned money goes and with making decisions with long-term alliances, partnerships, investments, and liabilities, then one must go Vulcan, right? One must take all the emotion and put it away, and we can bring the emotion back out when it's over with, or bad things happen, and I'm guilty of letting it happen myself. So I know from experience. Okay, let's let's start off with, there's a huge, like, Before when I heard the question, yeah, yeah, there's a big difference. But it can get gray. So let's start off with the initial question from a pure, titanical standpoint, an investor. I am an investor in many companies if I own a mutual fund. If I have direct stock in a company, I and I'm going to use a company I purposely, because I don't give advice on what to buy, I am not holding stock in this company right now. I'm using it as an example. But if I am a shareholder in Exxon, I am an investor in Exxon. As an investor, I have voting rights per number of shares. Now, people at our rank and file, our votes don't really mean anything, and most of the shareholders don't vote, or what have you, and there are voting shares and non-voting shares in companies but as an investor basically i've put money into something and then i have certain rights as an investor and usually if i'm an investor then i have cert- i have an ownership especially in something like the size of you're talking about i have a true ownership in the company or the entity that owns it. Usually, I don't own the restaurant. I own shares or, or or what have you in the corporation or the LLC or whatever that owns the restaurant. So Joe's Restaurant Emporium LLC owns Joe's Restaurant, and I own 10%, 20%, 50%, whatever of the LLC that owns the restaurant, Okay, if that makes sense. And as an investor... If I'm a pure investor, what I've said is this is my money, these are the terms of the investment, and this is how I how I get my money back. I either have rights when the business is sold, I have rights to a dividend, and as an investor, I have voting rights generally because I would not do if I'm – non-voting shares are when we take an employee in a company and give them a piece of the company, but we don't want them to have influence. If I'm giving you my money, I want influence. It goes with my money. So I have a certain amount of, and there are certain things that happen, meetings, etc., where we make strategic decisions at the top level of the business. Otherwise, I don't want to bother with this business. I, somebody's going to manage that business. Somebody's going to run that business. I want uh, financial statements quarterly. I want to be apprised of certain things. I, you know, that's that's a pure investor. Here's my money. Be good stewards of it. I'm not doing this because I like you. I'm doing this because I want to make more money. A partner is two people that are running a business together. Two people that are running a business together. So you and I go in the business of, of, of running a restaurant. And, and if we're partners in the business, then we need a partnership agreement that spells out what we're responsible for. It goes beyond investing. Now, this is where it gets gray. You can be a partner and an investor. If two guys start a business up together and both of them say, well, we're going to both put in $25,000 into a, the, the, this new corporate account and then we're going to go buy this property for $200,000, we are going to use half of the money to put down against the loan against this business and the other half to be operational capital for the first six months until we get the business on his feet, then those people are partners and investors. Because they've invested their capital and their time, and they also are operating in the business together as partners. On another note, you could be investors that are partners, though that's really semantical at that point. So that would mean that you found this restaurant, it needs some money. The two of you are both going to put up $25,000 to the restaurant to buy ownership in it as pure investors, and you're going to sit back as pure investors and view yourselves as partners because you came in the investment together. Or that you guys have enough money that you're going to go in and outright buy the concern, but leave the people that are running it in place. The owner wants to leave. He's tired. He's got a chef. He's got a sous chef. He's got a manager. And and all you're doing is buying it as pure ownership And you're going to sit back with each and equal stake in the business, but you're not going to be part of the operations of the business. Then technically you're investors, owners, and partners in the concern. But you're sitting back primarily as an investor. And I would have a lot of questions for you about this if I were counseling you specifically on whether to do it or not. The first would be, have you gotten a full operational financial breakdown of the last five years of operations of this business? And if it's not five years old, at least from its, from its onset. Do you know what the recur, uh, the, 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 the uh, historical recurrent gross top line revenue ex- and expenses are? What has been the profit of the business? Is that in an upward or downward trend? If it's in a downward trend, can you identify why? Like, they had a really good manager who left and is now working for the competition. And, and it would just go on. I mean, if you want me to buy into a restaurant with a liquor license, okay. We we, we got to have a lot of questions answered. And my Spirco sense is telling me that you have someone in your life that you consider a friend or a colleague. They're somewhat trusted. They're probably financially better off than you. They found this deal. They think that they should get in on this deal they don't want to put it all up themselves or maybe they don't have enough and they want to bring you with them into the deal. And that can get really ugly if you're not careful. I've turned down a lot of things like that from people that I actually trusted um, because I felt that if you really believe in this and you, and you have the financial means to do it without me, you should be going to do this without me. I, I don't know why you're trying to drag me along for the ride to something because I'm not really wanting to be in that business. In fact, one was a restaurant. One was a restaurant. And we even went and ate at it and talked to the the owner and, and thing. And here's what I'll tell you about restaurants. Generally speaking, as an owner of a restaurant or a partial owner of a restaurant, you don't make much money off a restaurant. If you are an owner operator and you're paying yourself a salary because you're doing a job that you would normally be paid, then you might do okay. But from a pure ownership standpoint, that's why you always see, even when it's not a franchise or, you know, like an on-the-border or something like that, big, huge franchise, most successful restaurateurs have multiple restaurants because it takes a lot of them to add up to enough to sit back as an owner and make enough money to justify all that risk. And you also want to allocate that risk across multiple stores, so if one fails, you still have the other ones you can compensate for it. Um... It's 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 one of those things that the first thing you do when you have a successful restaurant up on its feet and you pull out as an owner, you generally then set up another one. I'm not saying this is a bad deal. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. I'm saying my gut, based on the way I heard you talking and the questions you're asking, is you probably should not do it. I could be wrong, but go eyes wide open into this. And if, if you feel that it's a mistake, it's probably a mistake. And almost every time I've ever heard from anybody that buys into a business, gets as an investor in some type of business like this or something and they end up in a place where they don't want to be, they say something told me not to do this. There's a point where you you, you got to jump, you take the risk. But that something that something is usually right. Let's take another one.
4: Hi, Jack. My name's Mike. I live in central Ohio. And I just had a, a question for the rest of the listeners and yourself, and uh, also a comment. Um, I live in a county to the Ohio Administrative Code uh, 370-29. Um, they're now issuing permits and fees for all septic and aeration systems on private land, um, and they're giving these out every year, regardless of inspection or not. And if my calculations are correct, they've made a revenue of over right about three hundred thousand dollars per year. Actually, I guess if uh, since there's nine thousand of us in the county, it's roughly roughly two hundred seventy thousand dollars. Excuse me. <clears throat> so I was just wondering uh, if that's something that happens um, all over the United States, or if it's something that is uh, you know unique to Ohio. Um, so thanks for your time, Jack. Love
0: the show. Uh, and uh... Okay, so you had some broken parts in there, but I get the gist of it. So uh, your county is issuing a septic permit to you every year. Uh, so, for instance, when you build a home here in Texas, if you're going to use a septic-type solution, they send an inspector out to basically make sure that, it's done right and you're not going to be floating shit down to your neighbor's doors or something like that. And, uh, that you pay them 500 bucks and they go away forever and ever and ever and they never come back again. And I'm sure that there is a higher fee when you initially put your septic in, but what you're saying is now it's an annual permit. So it's not even an annual permit or an annual license, it's an annual fee. And I, I think what you said is $270,000 in revenue and there's about 9,000 people in the state, so that's about 30 bucks. So they're just charging you thirty bucks a year to to issue you a permit that they're not in, they're not doing anything. They're not coming out and saying well we're, we have to come out once a year and make sure it still works, make sure shit's not floating to your neighbors or something like your neighbor wouldn't tell you or something. Um, and we just issue this permit and you pay the thirty bucks. Is that happening elsewhere? It's not happening here, but I throw that out to people. It it sounds to me like. Well, we're not getting any money from these people for the sewer system, so let's try to get some money from them for their own system that they put in and they maintain on their own. And uh, let's do it at a level that it's 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 so cheap it's not going to create a major backlash. I mean, nine thousand people can swing a county election really fast, but will they do it over thirty bucks? So they can put two hundred and fifty, three hundred thousand dollars into the county budget just by charging this fee. And, and, and the sad thing is, if, if you gave me the ability to send 9,000 9, people a bill for 30 bucks that they had to pay, I can make a lot of money. By the time a government gets done processing that, I bet you they make less. I bet you they make less than a third of it that actually goes to pay expenses that they wouldn't have if they didn't do it. I bet you it costs them. $100,000, $150,000 to administer sending those 9,000 permits out. That they just wouldn't even have to work, work with otherwise. Now, the other way they might be doing it is, well, they have this ongoing need to do inspections for new builds and stuff like that. And they have to have a guy that's the inspector and he goes out and does this stuff. So that might be another way that they're looking at it. Like, they're, like, if they charge, like, do what Texas does. And they're charging 500 bucks, Well, they have to have a guy go do it. And there's not enough new installs to pay a salary of a guy qualified to do it. So we'll tack this on and we'll make an extra 270 grand a year. It, it sounds like it's just simply what you would call a revenue enhancement. It's, it's an easy, low, under the radar thing you can do to steal more money from taxpayers that they really can't do anything about. And it's a small enough annoyance that it probably won't cost anybody their jobs at the next election. But i it, that's all I got. If anybody else has something like this, I'd like to hear about it. It seems very difficult to justify to me. Um, I think if you tried it here in Texas, I think you would have a major uprising. I think you'd have some very pissed off people if you started taxing them on the septic system. Because my view is, well, I put that in, and if it breaks, you're not going to send anybody to fix it. It's not like a sewer pipe. It's not like a sewer pipe. You know, if I have a sewer pipe and something goes wrong, well, yeah, I have to pay you to take my shit away, but you have to send a guy in a truck to fix the sewer pipe. This, I, you're, you're now taxing me. It's another form of property tax, really. And uh, that's probably what they do here. We probably have it too. They just probably build it into your property tax. Septic tank, that increases the value of the property by X, and therefore they probably do that to you too and tax you twice. Let's take another one.
5: My daughter is no longer autistic. How can that happen? Hey, Jack, this is Matt from Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, I was just sharing some information with the Zello community, uh, and my login there is the Zello channel, and uh, they wanted me to call you and let you know about this. So in 2013, my daughter was diagnosed with uh, Asperger's, the lower end of the autism scale. Uh, shortly after that, we learned that it's more emotional ties to being in public environments. Emotional things where it blocks down information, so they prescribed the medications. Took the medications for about a week, didn't like how that made her change her personality. She was no longer who she was before. So we backed off on the medication because we wanted her to stay the same. Problems continued, so we pulled her out of school and we started homeschooling her. So for the last approximately two and a half to three years, we have been homeschooling her. Uh, being that we're a military family, obviously I'm getting in the process of being separated, but being a military family, we changed places a lot. We assumed we would be doing this for quite some more time. Um, so we were okay with it. But as of today, Some good news during this retirement phase. As of December 28th of this year, my daughter is no longer autistic by their confidential neuropsychological evaluation form, finding her no longer autistic. Um, The community just wanted me to call because a couple of them mentioned that they're going through the same thing. I remember episodes we've done in the depression that you've done in the past that have mentioned that, you know, these prescription drugs and all that stuff are bad. There's always a way to learn about people. Maybe this is a way that the community can see it does happen. Your child can be, I don't want to say misdiagnosed, but diagnosed with something. And as long as you listen to the kid learn about this stuff, that there's a possibility they can no longer be diagnosed with a situation like that and have to take those nasty medications. Thank you for everything you do, Jack. Honestly, without this community and without the uh, TSP channel, I don't know how hard we would have pushed for doing the homeschooling with my daughter, but it worked. Thank you.
0: But see, that's not possible because autism isn't curable. Um, I, I will say a little bit kind of in defense and while attacking the medical establishment at the same time, I guess, is someone that grew up classically with, with what you would call Asperger's before they changed it to just autism spectrum disorder. I don't know that autism and Asperger's really belong in the same vein. I, I really don't. I have a cousin who's autistic and I remember being a child, and and they didn't call it anything when I was a kid. They just said, well, he's a little odd or whatever. And, and being the kid with, you know, had I known the, the title Asperger's, we were very, 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 very different okay um, from a from a functional standpoint an intelligence standpoint, what have you you know he, this is a, a a cousin of mine who 's i think a, a year older that has to have assistance for the rest of his life okay um, you know he there 's some things he can do with his life now and all, but he 's not capable of, you know, having his own place and, 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 and taking care of himself 100%. Just not. And most people with Asperger's never even get close to that. So, classic things with Asperger's are things like, you know, recognizing patterns, uh, high intellect, uh, one of the big problems is a lack of empathy. And, uh, I think that if you if you've never experienced this you, you probably don't even really understand what that really means and I think maybe the term is incorrect. It is not that people with Asperger's lack empathy. They fail to see why it's a problem. So if, if you see somebody that has Asperger's and they watch somebody get their head cut off, they have plenty of empathy. They have plenty of sympathy. But if if someone gets their, their feelings hurt because they said something that, that was just like it, it upset them but it wasn't a big deal and they're crying over it, then they have no empathy. Uh, Because, well, why are you upset? This is nothing. And and I still struggle with that today. And at some levels, I feel like you people need to freaking grow the hell up and quit being hurt and, and upset about everything. And I can't tell you how many times I've been, somebody's in tears because of you. What the hell are you talking about, right? But but other people seem to understand that that would cause that to happen. So uh, I guess that's the case. Um, and and I've said my whole life that I am so glad that we didn't have the word Aspergers when I was a kid or. ADD or ADHD because I'm sure I would have been labeled with all of them. And and I think it would have screwed up my life. And I, I, I feel like we are at a place where we are trying to jam children into an institution and when they don't fit the institution we never blame the institution, we blame the child. And what this parent did was say you're not doing that with my kid. You're not doing that with my child. I'm going to take responsibility for this and do the best that I can and had a great result. And I would say if your daughter legitimately is an Aspie, she's not cured. She simply now can function at a level where the system accepts her function as normal. Because it's. I, I, I really believe that Asperger's... And I say this is somebody who, again, my diagnosis would have been through the roof with it. That is highly functional, but was there myself, and I'm still there. Because I'm, I'm telling you, I, I've had recently in my life, my wife come to me and say, they're in tears because of you. And go, what in the hell could I have possibly said that somebody would cry over? And and, and it, it's it's just part of who you are. I believe it's more a personality trait. And it's a personality trait that so differs from what people call normal that it takes time to adapt and say, oh, I understand that I need to pull this back. I understand that I need to go a little bit slower with this person. Um, But there's going to be things that she'll deal with for the rest of her life. You want to infuriate me? If I'm intensely working on something, disrupt my work. That bothers everybody. No, no, you don't understand. You do not understand. You, you absolutely. Don't. I'm I'm talking about intensely on, working on something. You do not interrupt me when I'm intense on some sort of work, especially for something that's not important. It, it, it's, it's it's infuriating beyond words, and and it's that's another common Aspie trait. So, I'm I'm very happy for you, and and what I would say is, just accept the fact that you're that you have a you have a person that you love that it's at some point will probably say something very hurtful to you. I mean especially as they get older and they, they begin to process things at a higher level and they're gonna make leaps and jumps fast enough that they're gonna get ahead of where you're at because I know I, I still do it. I, I and and I I I will apologize to the person that I hurt once I understand why I hurt them, but I won't apologize for it as a total thing because it's who I am. And I think we all have different gifts, and, and I believe that Asperger's is a gift. I don't believe that it is a it is a cross to bear. I believe that it does require what you did, uh, and that can either be done by a wise parent, or if you don't have wise parents, as you get older, you do it for yourself. You realize that the issues I have can't all be those people. Because I have issues here, I have issues there, I have issues here, I have issues there. All those people don't even know each other. It can't possibly be them. It has to be me. And then you figure out how to adapt to it. And you figure out how to adapt to certain things. So, I mean, I I think I've said this before. I don't like to look people in the eye. And people meet me and they can't believe that's the case because they're sure I look them in the eye. I generally don't look people in the eye. I look at their forehead right above their eyes. And long enough that I, I they feel like they've gotten, you know, what they need to feel good about. It. Now, once I'm comfortable with a person, I, I have no problem with it. But in general, when I'm just meeting somebody for the first time, I don't want – because to me, that's a very personal thing. And if I don't really know you, I, I'm not ready to have that kind of a personal engagement with you yet. But that's considered like a, 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 a bad thing in our society. So you learn adaptations. So – if she doesn't need them, fine. But if she does, just be open to those types of things in the future. And if if you have a problem where she says, I'm having trouble because people, you know, this, and I don't want people in the eye, you know, Jack looks at people's forehead. It works for him. Like right over their eyebrows. Just right there. You know? And I got one eye that just kind of goes off. That's my other thing. I had a, a lazy eye, I guess you call it. A, a Serious astigmatism differential is what I have. So both eyes neither astigmatism is that bad but they're so different i have a really strong the the, the as a child the optic nerve to my right eye developed well and the left eye didn't so the left eye is inherently weak due to, to to neural development so i have this weird like Forrest whitaker eye on the left side and with that you know um people are so worried about that they don't worry about me not looking at them so even our weaknesses can become strengths let's take another one
4: hello jack this is jonathan I called you uh, a few years ago when I got my first beer. I have some uh, questions now. I wonder about uh, raccoon hunting, if you've done much of it, what your thoughts are? Uh, any counsel or wisdom you have that way? I'm using uh, 17 WSM new cartridge right now. Uh, I have been using 22 long rifle, and I'm thankful that I stepped up in power. Uh, yeah, let me uh, hear more from you on uh, rim fires and uh, rifles. More gun talk, please. Thanks, sir.
0: Okay, so one of the things I would say with coon hunting, and you—you're probably good because you're in Pennsylvania, and they're pretty good about their education program. You got to take a hunter's education course, and they go into more than just safety, but the actual rules of the state. But you know, a raccoon in Pennsylvania is a fur bearer, and you have to have a fur bearer license, which will license you to both hunt and trap raccoons. And I would say anybody listening anywhere else, don't assume that that's how your state works. So in Pennsylvania, that's how that works. Here in Texas, um, a recreational hunter, which means you're shooting a raccoon just to shoot it and then to use it or to throw it in a hole in the ground because you're a jerk, um, you can shoot raccoons as long as you're a licensed hunter hunter year-round. They actually have a season, and the season is September 1st to August 31st. You can do that math if you want to, that, that day math in your head, and Figure that out, but it basically it's year-round. But if you're trapping or, or or hunting for commercial purpose, meaning that you're going to sell the animal or its hide, then you have to have a, a, tra- a trapping license, and there's a season for for that type of activity. And it it, it it varies from state to state because in Texas, they don't worry about people going out there and shooting a lot of raccoons because they just don't do it. They just they don't do it, and they, and it's looked at as the people that generally shoot raccoons are farmers and ranchers when the raccoons being a problem, and this just makes it easy because it's, it's just considered open season. So you, you you want to determine that first. I don't have a lot of experience hunting raccoons. I've shot quite a few of them as nuisance animals. Uh, I generally try to make use of anything that I shoot. Um, a lot of times when, when I've shot animals for nuisance, it's not been a time of year where the pelt is very valuable. So raccoon meat I actually consider to be a pretty good thing. And I grew up, most of my experience with raccoons is a trapper. In my teens, I ran trap lines because it made us money. And you don't come home with you know four or five coons and all that meat and throw it away when you are not a very wealthy family or eventually a very wealthy individual. I was pretty young when I moved out on my own. I wasn't even legal to do it when I did. So that was food. And I would say if you want to learn to cook raccoon well, learn to skin well, learn to trim well, and learn to get the kernels, and you can just go to YouTube and find where the kernels are on raccoons and get those kernels, those four glands from the front and the back legs, out and don't mess them up. And then very, very slow and low cooking, and it's pretty good stuff. So I guess I could give you that. As far as, you know, hunting with rifles, and you say you got a, I think you said a 17 HMR, so 17, uh, rim fire basically. Um, it's adequate. It, it certainly is. Um, the kind of the go-to has always been the 22 or 22 Magnum with them. Um, I, I don't have any experience using those highly frangible 17-caliber bullets uh, on something like a raccoon. I can tell you they're tough, and, and you might be better off going back to a twenty two. But you're, you, the only way you're going to find that is by going out and doing it. I'm sure if you take a, a lung shot with one of those, um, they're just extremely destructive. But I once shot a raccoon, and I, I literally saw in the scope of the twenty two the bullet go into the ear hole, knocked it off the rail of the deck, onto the ground, and when I went to go recover it, it stood up, and like the zombie coon attack thing, I know Brian Blackshot won something like six or seven times with a 9 millimeter before it stopped moving. Uh, so they are tough animals for their size. Uh, personally, my raccoon dispatch tool of choice is a 410 with number 4 buckshot. If I'm not worried about the pelt. And these days and age, I'm not worried about the pelt. So if you're just hunting for sport and meat, uh, you know, you don't have quite the range. But in the dark, you don't have that much range anyway. If you're out night hunting for coons, which is legal in Pennsylvania as far as I know, uh, which is probably what you're doing, and, uh, you know, you hit a coon with number four buck, they go down like a rock. So, I, I mean, I, I don't know that I can really add much more to it. Um, I am not a huge fan of... Of the 17 rim fires, That said, I have not had a lot of experience with them. I have not been compelled to develop the experience. I don't know. I, I, I don't know if they're all they're cracked up to be or not. And there's a lot of people that love them. So if you like it and it works, um, go for it. Go for it. But just, you know, maybe if it's legal for you, carry a sidearm or something for dispatch if it doesn't work out the way you had planned. I, I don't know. I From what I've seen from raccoons, I worry. I worry about that frangible bullet if you're taking headshots and things like that. For me as a trapper, I wanted minimal pelt damage. So we would always approach from behind, the animal's in a leg hole trap, and shoot it right at the base of the skull, right where the spine joins the skull. He puts one little hole there, comes out the throat... And that really doesn't do any damage to the pel,t as far as the fur value, and uh, that was, and that always works. You separate the the C two C one vertebrae from the brain, and it's a dead dead animal. And the twenty two is plenty. To do. I'm sure the seventeen would be plenty for that as well. So most of my experience is either with a shotgun or with a twenty two at close range to the back of the base of the skull. Um, but I, I would say if you're going to do this. You know, at least give eating the meat a try. And if you're doing this primarily as a means to, to gain meat, if that's actually what you're doing, you have a, a longer trapping season in Pennsylvania than you do a hunting season. Uh, if you're doing it for fun, you like it, it's sport, whatever, that's fine. But if you're doing it primarily as a, a meat acquisition strategy, you might start learning the ins and outs of the one and a half coil spring. And, uh, you can, you can multiply your success a great deal with those. I'll just say that. Uh let's take uh, I think I got one more and we'll uh wrap up for the day.
6: Jack, uh question for you. Uh gun and hunting. Uh is 40 Smith & Wesson sufficient for hunting? The uh story is I've been bow hunting for years and years and this year the uh freezer was kind of thin. So I needed to take out a gun. My wife says take what you're most comfortable with and I love my sub 2K 16-inch barrel with a 40 Smith & Wesson. 550 foot-pounds of energy, and uh, I, I shot a deer broadside 20 yards. Deer went down, but it ran 100 yards, and I had no blood trail because there wasn't a pass-through. Really worried I wouldn't be able to find it. I did find it. It was a double-lung shot, but at 20 yards, is this something I should consider in the future, or am I just going to have to get something else if I need to uh, deer hunt with a gun? Normally it's a bow, but i was really stressing. We count on the meat for the family, and uh, I didn't have much this year. So I did get an extra one, but, haha, I'm just a little gun-shy now. So what are your thoughts?
0: Thanks. Well, um, it's funny. When you first started asking that question, the first thing that popped into my mind is about the only weapon that I see that making any sense in is a sub-2K, uh, which is what you have, which is interesting because that 16-inch barrel – ballistically transforms your 40 Smith and Wesson into about the equivalent of a 10 millimeter out of about a 5-inch barrel handgun. It, just because of the velocity boost, which gives you a corresponding boost in energy. However, the the challenge is, and I've always said that's if I was gonna you know invest in another sub-2K, I'd probably get a 40 because it has that backup usage as a hunting weapon, and I kind of see it at that level. There's not a lot of really good hunting Bullets in that 40 cal Smith and West, uh, 40 and and 10 millimeter size. Um, and most of the stuff is either full metal jacket or hollow point. And I guess what you would want to do is, if you're going to continue to do this, I would want to try to find the heaviest flat point, if they make it, that you can load and fire in that caliber. Because that's going to give you less expansion, more penetration, and you're more likely to get an exit wound, which is going to give you a good bleed. I I think what a lot of people don't understand is you can dump a bunch of energy into an animal, and you can make a lot of damage to the lungs. But when there's one hole in, a lot of times that doesn't bleed very much. But when you pop out the other side, all of a sudden both sides spurt. It's kind of there's a physics and vacuum thing going on there. Now that said, if you shoot an animal in the lungs and you get into both lungs, about a hundred yards is how far that animal's going to get. That's the maybe a little further, about as far as it can hold its breath, and it's done. That's we learned that a long time ago from a gentleman named Jack O'Connor. However, Jack was really big on the you know going in one side and coming out the other. That was a a big thing with him, too. He wanted that. That's why I was such a fan of the 270 Long, dart-like, high sectional density. Sectional density of a bullet is its ability to penetrate. And, I mean, that's your issue. Your sectional density of your 10mm slugs is not very high. When I shot the deer I shot this year with the 357 Magnum, uh, I had the exact same thing you described, though. And I don't find that to be, you know, limited at all in what it's capable of. I smacked the hell out of that deer Um and 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 broke both shoulders, but not heavy on the shoulder. Back toward the the back edge of the shoulder blades, went through both lungs. Uh, came out the other side and did not have an exit wound. Uh, that deer ran about fifty to sixty feet, but in you know so close to dark. By the time I got down there, it was dark and in thick brush and no blood. And we were able to basically just figure out where she was hit, what direction she ran, and eventually I was able to spot, you know, the white belly and stuff in, in with the lights in the dark and, and, and find her. Had that deer gone hundred yards, it might have been really difficult to find her that evening. So when you're when you're going down to these lighter calibers, you, you always want to try to err to the side of heavy bullets. Heavy solid bullets, and I don't know that I would be comfortable going to something like a full metal jacket in this uh, just to get that penetration. So, for for instance, for me, my plan long term on my 357 as I continue to take other medium and, and, and large game with it, is to go to something like a 180 grain hard cast, and, and I'm not up to snuff on the 40 very much. So I don't know what's available. I pulled up buffalo bore because generally, if you're looking for you know, the the, the the biggest sledgehammer you can get in whatever you're shooting, Buffalo bores the people, and they've got some pretty impressive loads. And they would be damn impressive out of that Kel-Tec. However, two of them are, 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 are uh, uh, hollow points, and one is a full metal jacket. So I, I, if I were you, what I might try to do, if you insist on doing this, and I'll get to why maybe you shouldn't in just a second, uh, if you insist on doing this, you you might want to find what are the heaviest loads for the ten millimeter, and try to find something that uses that slug in the forty because you're asking that bullet, the the terminal bullet, you know the the projectile itself, to perform for you at velocities it in many cases wasn't designed to perform at. So you add three hundred feet per second to that uh, barrel, but that that you know one hundred and twenty five grain uh, hollow point. Was designed to perform uh, as a self-defense round, 300 feet per second slower, and now you're putting it into a deer, uh, 300 feet per second faster. It's going to expand more rapidly, and, and then penetration is going to suffer. Would I stick with this as a deer gun? Well, first of all, I, I, did you? I don't know. Did I, I? Maybe I missed it. Did you say you're from Pennsylvania? Okay, I went back and listened again to be sure. I guess I was blending that with the last caller who was from Pennsylvania. He just said, "Some places that might not even be legal." Um, and, and, and you know me, I'm not big on appeasing the state, but like that's the thing that you don't want to get a, you know, uh, get found by with a warden for. It's it's just a, a, one of those things that's not necessary. There's just so many things that are a better deer round than that. That I would particularly say you're probably better off without it. Now, if you're going to keep your shooting at close range and all, this is the other thing I would say then. It's a semi-auto. That's why it's illegal in some states, and it might be caliberly illegal for other reasons. But uh, it's a semi-auto. It's a very quick follow-up. Don't shoot an animal once. If you're 25 yards from a deer and you put a, a round into it and it goes down or it stumbles and it gets back up, and you got a semi-auto with them sights, bang, bang, bang. Put three or four holes in it, and it will it will change its attitude really, really fast. But a thirty thirty, you know, a cheap old lever action thirty thirty you can get at a gun show for a few hundred dollars is so superior. It, it, it's so superior. A you know, if you want to use a pistol caliber carbine, a forty four magnum is so superior, and it just doesn't. It's just not a deer gun. You know, you're talking about uh, the, the Keltec is designed to be basically a home defense gun, and I've always been a fan of the fact that it has that 10 millimeter velocity and it could be used in an emergency for for hunting. But I, I wouldn't recommend it. I mean, frankly, I'd say if you're going to deer hunt frequently, there's tons of like old Savage bolt guns that can be acquired for two, three hundred bucks, 308s, uh, you know, 243, d- 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 anything like that, 306. All of these are such better deer guns, and you could almost think of any centerfire rifle cartridge, almost, right? That would be a better deer round. A two seventy, a thirty five Remington. I mean, you could just you could make a, a list of a hundred cartridges that would be better suited for this. The three fifty seven Magnum is better, especially out of a carbine, because you have a better selection of projectiles. You have a better selection of factory ammo. Is it? Is it enough? The dead deer in your freezer says it's enough, you're, you're, you're 40 Smith. It's just not ideal, and it's not something that I would feel comfortable recommending you stick to. I still think it's damn cool that you did it, though. I'll, I'll put it that way. But uh, I would look to up your game on ammo if you're going to continue this uh, pursuit. And, again, check legalities because it's just not something worth getting uh, cited by a warden for. And if you have already shot a deer, losing your deer over and things like that, especially if, like me, you rely on the meat for a, a portion of your protein for the year. All right. With that, I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you do, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Just go to the Survival Podcast dot com and click on members to learn more at the bottom you can click the link to sign up. You can either do it online with uh with PayPal or you can do it with Bitcoin or you can pay by mail with uh cash checks, silver, those types of things. Again, the survival Click on members to learn more. Next up, uh the other way you can support us the easy, super easy. I mean super easy way. Tspaz dot com, dot com next time you're going to buy something on amazon.com go to tspas.com first that's all you got to do tspas.com click the link next thing you know on amazon do your amazon shopping doesn't cost you any extra money doesn't really even take any extra time you support our work for the show that you listen to five days a week that's that's pretty easy to do today's item of the day is flower sack t- towels by a company called utopia kitchen i'm going to tell you the truth i don't really give a damn about utopia kitchen i don't care um, I have never bought a flour sack tall and went, gee, I wish I, wish I would have bought the other brand. They're better. Um, they're pretty much all the same. They are a, a fine woven uh, cotton uh, towel uh, that's lint-free, and, and I don't really care about that either. I use these things to make yogurt cheese instead of cheesecloth. They work much better. They don't let anything come through, uh, and you can use them over and over again. The reason I chose Utopia Kitchen as my brand is because you get 12 of them for about 19 bucks. And that's the best price I can find on them. And they're on Prime, so they ship free within two days. So that's that's why I have the brand. But again, the main reason I decided to put them out there is I'm big on fermented foods. And I'm big on yogurt cheese. And if you haven't heard me talk about making yogurt cheese before, then you're missing out and you need to know how to make yogurt cheese. So give me a chance to kind of rehash that. So you take your flour sack towel and you get a bowl and you get like a a steel colander, like a just anything that's like a, a strainer. And you put your flour sack towel in your tra- strainer, and you put your strainer to your bowl so that when stuff leaks out, it ends up in the bowl instead of like on the floor or something like that. And you dump yogurt in there, and you get a big pinch of salt and throw it in there, and you stir it up, and then you fold the towel over, and you let it sit for 12 to 24 hours, depending on how tangy you want it to be and how firm you want it to be. And it's done. You have something that's kind of like tangy cream cheese. and And th- that's the simple way. Right, and there's no more complicated way, but I've never made it like that because it's kind of a, a plain cheese. So I always like to put things in it. So while the yogurt's nice and soft, you put your your flavorings in there and stir it up, and now you too can make cheese, and you can make cheese in a half a day to a day, depending on how tangy you want it to be. And so, so here's some of the things I've put in different batches of this stuff: uh, fresh basil and fresh garlic. That's the you know everybody that tries that one likes it. Chopped jalapenos and fresh garlic. Uh, cracked black pepper, rosemary, and thyme. And I generally use the, the dehydrated ones of those because I don't have a lot of fresh thyme and rosemary around. Uh, and rosemary is one of those things that I – one of the herbs that I think actually is better as a dried herb than a fresh herb. Though so fresh thyme is nice. Uh, cracked black pepper and almond slivers. I tried that one day. That was freaking good. So uh, you get these big bags of almond slivers. I get them from Costco. And uh yeah, let's try this. So after that worked out, one day I was like, walnut and lemon. Just sounds good. So we were making some lemonade, so I zested two lemons, threw the zest into a big, you know, tub of yogurt, and uh, chopped up some walnuts really, really fine, threw those in there, mixed that up, gave that a day, worked out really great. And I've always thought, you know, wouldn't it be neat to make a cheese press for this and make a little bit firmer? And well, I'm like, y- you don't really need a cheese press, Dummy. So I went and got like a big, like, you know, 22 ounce can of beans or something like that out of the pantry and just sat it on top of there and it worked just fine. And it made a little bit more firm. So you can make it a little bit more firm than that. When, when it's done, in the bowl will be this, this liquid. That liquid's whey. And it's chock full of lactobacillus. And if you like it, you can drink it. You can take a tablespoon of it a day as a, as a, just an extra add, uh, to that good gut bacteria. Your animals will drink, your dogs, your cats will drink it. I've given it to the ducks when we've made a lot of it. They love it. Uh, so it's good for your animals as well. Don't throw it away, I guess is my point. But flour sack towels, if you use them, you will never use cheesecloth for anything except maybe real cheese. Like if you're making real cheddar or something like that where you, you kind of need that, you, you won't use cheesecloth anymore. Uh, this just works better. It just absolutely – it also works – Those of you that are brewers or something like that or, you know, maybe you make some of that fuel that you might spill in your mouth and you might have a lot of grain in something and you want to, before it goes into the fuel cooker or to the uh, fermenter, they work as a pretty good strainer uh, as well. So you lay them in a strainer and pour through them and they will just take, you know, they filter everything out for you and, again, 19 bucks for 12 of them and you'll... Probably never need any ever again unless you use them an awful lot because they just seem to last forever. You wash them out. They don't retain any stink or odor from the cheese. Uh, they come out completely clean. And uh, my understanding is they are great for drying dishes and stuff like that. But I'm not big on doing dishes. That's why I have a dishwasher. Um, just saying. Hey. <laughs> Um uh, check them out, Flower Sack Towels, and do your Amazon shopping at tspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day, and I have kind of a different kind of one for you today. I had something else um, totally, totally planned uh, for today. I was going to kind of springboard off of what I did yesterday with Whalen and bring a Whalen and Willie song on, and we'll do that on Monday because this is nothing like that. I, I, I found this yesterday on Facebook. and it, it brought a smile to my face. Uh, it's a good educational tool too, I think, about economic systems. But many, many years ago, I played a song on the air for you uh, that was called uh, "Beware of the Boom and the Bust," and it was by a, a, a YouTube creator called Econ Stories, Econ Stories. And uh, it was basically they do these like fake mimic rap battles. They actually do a pretty decent production value of, and it was uh, John Maynard Keynes and, and Frederick, Frederick Hayek right recreated and, and do this epic rap battle over their economic systems with with Keynes uh, obviously being the uh, Keynesian uh economic system that we're under right now uh which is all about you know federal control of the economic system and creating inflation and and just spending money whenever it's necessary and uh Hayek was was uh, very much the the epitome Uh, of of laissez-faire capitalism and free markets and and letting markets do what markets do and seeing that as the bigger solution. And uh, so I'm on Facebook as I see this Keynes and Hayek second round 2.0, a a new battle, a new rap battle. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's cool. And I look at it, it's actually five years old. I just never saw it. And I think this would be one that's worth you watching the video for. Kind of an entertaining video. I'll take out the beginning where they're talking because it won't do any good. Uh, But as they're walking in for this big meeting, they're going for it looks like Congress and they're deciding what economic system to use going forward. But it flips back and forth between them, you know, sitting at this desk side by side and kind of getting along and each making their case for their economic system and this, like, epic boxing match. And in the boxing match, Hayek just beats the shit out of Keynes, right? And you're like, wow, he won. But at the end, the referee picks Cain's up off the uh, off the freaking mat and holds his hand up as though he won, because everybody just wants another party. Everybody just wants another bubble. Uh, so even when Hayek wins, he still you know can't win for losing, so to speak. But uh, I was kind of impressed with the, the production value of the song <laughs> itself. Um, and uh, I'm not a rap fan at all. And certainly the video. I hope you enjoyed. I hope it puts a smile on your face uh, as you go into the weekend. But uh there's there's one line in it that really is just, I don't know, it makes you feel good when you hear it because it's true. He says the economy is org- or the market is organic. It's organic, and of course that comes from Hayek. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tougher, even if they don't.
7: <laughs> John Maynard Keynes. F.A. Hayek. Round two. Round 2.0. Same economists. Same beliefs. New microphones. New mustaches. Here we are, peace out, Great Recession, thanks to me, as you see, we're not in a depression. Recovery, destiny, if you follow my lesson, Lord Canes, here I come, line up for the procession. We brought out the shovels and we're still in a ditch and still digging.
8: Don't you think it's time for a switch from that hair of the dog? Friend, the party is over, the long run is here, and
7: time to get sober. Are you kidding? your works perfectly fine, have a look, the Great Recession ended back in 09. I deserve credit, things would have been worse. All the estimates proven, I'll put chapter and verse. Econometricians, they're ever so
8: pious. Are they doing real science or confirming their bias? Their Keynesian models are tidy and neat, but that top-down approach is a fatal conceit. Oh. Which way should we
9: choose? What bottom up for more down The fight continues. Cays high it's second round. It's time to win from the top, or from the ground. Let's listen to the greats and, and high. Down. We could have
7: done better had we only spent more Too bad that only happens when there's a world war You can carve all you want about stats and regression Do you deny World War II cut short the depression? Wow,
8: one data point and you're jumping for joy The last time I checked, war's only destroyed There was no multiplier, consumption just shrank As we used scarce resources for every new tank Pretty perverse to call that prosperity ration meat ration butter a life of austerity when that war spending ended your friends cried disaster yet the economy thrived and grew faster
7: You two only see what you want to see The spending on war clearly proves GDP Unemployment was over, almost down to zero That's why I'm the master, that's why I'm the hero Creating employment's a straightforward craft.
8: When the nation's at war and there's a draft If every worker was staffed in the army and fleet We'd have full employment and nothing to eat Nothing to eat,
9: nothing to eat, nothing to eat situation Choose More bottom up, for more The fight continues. Came to high, it's second round. It's time to win it. More from the top, or from the ground. Let's listen to the
8: the ends in themselves. People work to live better, to put food on the shelves.
7: Real growth means production of what people demand. That's entrepreneurship, not your central plan. My solution is simple and easy to handle. It's spending that matters. Why is that such a scandal? Money sloshes through the pipes and the sluices. Revitalizing the economy's juices. It's just like an engine that stalled and gone dark. To bring it to life, we need a quick spark. Spending's the lifeblood that gets the flow going. Where it goes doesn't matter. Just get spending close. You see, slack in some sectors as a general glut But some sectors are
8: healthy, only some in a rut So spending's not free, that's the heart of the matter Too much is wasted as cronies get fatter The economy's not a car, there's no engine to stall No expert can fix it, there's no it at all The economy's us, we don't need a mechanic Put away the wrenches, the economy's organic
9: Which way should we choose? bottom up or, or down, the fight continues Second round, it's time to win Walk on the top, walk the ground. Let's listen to the bits changing high and throwing What would you
7: do to help those unemployed? Is the question you seem to avoid When we're in a mess Would you have us just wait Doing nothing Until markets equilibrate I don't
8: want to do nothing There's plenty to do The question I ponder is Who plans for whom Do I plan for myself Or leave it to you I want plans by the many Not by the few Let's not repeat What created our troubles I want real growth Not a series of bubbles Stop bailing out losers Let prices work If we don't try to steer them They
7: won't go berserk Come on, are you kidding? Don't Wall Street gyrations challenge a worldview of self-regulation? Even you must admit that the lesson we've learned is more oversight's needed or else we'll get burned.
8: Oversight? The government's long been in bed with those Wall Street execs and the firms that they've led. Capitalism's about profit and loss. You bail at the losers, there's no end to the cost. The lesson I've learned is how little we know. The world is complex, not some circular flow. The economy's not a class you can master in college. To think otherwise is the pretense of knowledge.
9: Situation we choose? Oh, up, oh, the fight high, exciting like round.
7: I'll roll up my sleeves and do what I can to cure our disease. The future's uncertain. Our outlooks are frail. That's why free markets are so prone to fail. In a volatile world, we need more discretion, so state intervention can counter depression.
8: People aren't chessmen, you move on a board at your whim,
7: their dreams and desires
8: ignored. With political incentives, discretion's a joke. Those dials are twisting, just mirrors and smoke. We need stable rules and real market prices, so prosperity emerges and cuts short the crisis. Give us a chance so we can discover the most valuable ways to serve one another.
9: (laughs) Where should we choose? More bottom up more down, the fight continues Situation we choose. More bottom up or more top down. The fight continues. Kings and Hayek second round. It's time to win it. Wolf on the top or from the ground. Let's listen to the great sights. Kings and Hayek drove down. Come get your e-com story.